Hello, I'm Erica Bakiaki, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was so eager to see you all in DC this year, but alas, this will have to do. So I want to propose to you in this presentation a simple but controversial idea. And I'm going to pull up uh, some, a slideshow here to help me uh, do that. So though we usually think of the women's movement and the sexual revolution as all of a piece, I want to argue that they really ought to be understood not only as distinctive from one another, but in many ways, the contraries of one another. In a word, I think that pro-life feminism is authentic feminism and that the relentless quest for abortion rights has really led the movement astray. So let's start first with some basic truths about human beings that I think are both foundational to feminist questions and incontrovertible too. Controversial today, yes, absolutely, but incontrovertible nonetheless. The first is a very simple biological fact that women and men are reproductively dissimilar. Our bodies share many common attributes as the given bodies of homo sapiens, but how we engage in sex and take part in reproduction is not one of them. This sexual distinctiveness is that which makes us male and female. But it also gives rise, and this is really the key here, to a sexual asymmetry, the fundamental reality that the potential consequences of sexual intercourse are far more immediate and serious for women than they are for men. Simply put, women can get pregnant and men cannot. So what I'm saying is that there's a dramatic inequality at really the heart of sex and the consequences of sex. But isn't that right? Women and men can engage together in the same sexual act, but it is women whose bodies have the capacity for gestating new human beings, not men. This sexual asymmetry ought to ennoble women in many cultures, both historically and today, it really does. But it also underlies the natural vulnerability that women and, and their children experience, a vulnerability that callous men have exploited throughout human history. It is of course this exploitation of women that all feminists rightly respond to. So the question for a society that really cares about treating both men and women with justice and equal dignity and supporting and encouraging the good use of all their talents becomes how we respond personally and culturally to this reality of sexual asymmetry, the ever apparent sexual and reproductive differences in the male and female bodies that are not going away. Seeking to respond to this question, in my view, is the rightful search for an authentic reproductive justice. So I think there are three obvious ways to respond to asymmetry, or I'm going to limit myself here to the obvious three. The first is simply to assume that women are, by nature, designed only to bear and care for children, even if this means in the post-industrial landscape that they will be relegated entirely to the home, unable to participate in the public sphere, only with great difficulty. This I take to be the traditionalist view. In a word, Reproductive asymmetry is natural, and so it must be just. Then, for number two, there are those who would wish to simply upend reproductive asymmetry altogether as an ill-conceived reaction, it seems to me, to this troubling traditionalist view. Reproduction is fundamentally unequal, and so justice calls for equalizing it in some way. So though population control and to a lesser extent public health were the initial reasons for the development of the pill and the legalization of abortion, 
feminist advocates of the 1960s and especially 70s began to see the potential of the pill and abortion as sex equalizers in the bedroom and boardroom as well. But in rightfully responding to the traditionalists, the sexual revolutionaries sought equality for women by a very strange means. They sought equality for women by way of imitation of men. That is, contraception and especially abortion seem to afford women a means to imitate men's ability to have sex without consequences, to have sex and walk away. Men's bodies, after all, do not carry the consequences of their fertility within them. The idea put forth by early abortion advocate Larry Later was that with unlimited abortion access, women might come to enjoy the pleasures of sex with the freedom men did and also meet their new responsibilities in the workplace as their unencumbered male counterparts were able to. In a word, if men could walk away from an unexpected pregnancy, then sexual equality requires women to be free to do the same. But of course, unlike a biological father, a pregnant woman cannot just walk away from the nascent child developing in her womb. To approach the desired autonomy of the child abandoning man, a pregnant woman must engage in a life-destroying act. So my question for you is, is this really equality? or is it something else entirely? So now we come to the third response to sexual asymmetry, that of pro-life feminists. These women's rights advocates not only reject abortion as an imitative means to a faux equality, they also fundamentally regard abortion as a deeply unequal and unjust act, an act of violence and domination of the powerful over the powerless instead. Consider as one striking example of this view, Victoria Woodhill, the first woman to run for president of the United States nominated by the Equal Rights Party in 1872, an outspoken advocate of constitutional equality for women and also the first woman to testify before Congress, Woodhill championed the rights of children, rights that as she said, begin while yet they remain the fetus. In 1870, she wrote, Many women who would be shocked at the thought of killing their children after birth deliberately destroy them previously. If there's any difference in the actual crime, she said, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter pointed out. The truth of the matter is that it is just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after the fully developed form is attained, for it is the self-same life that is taken. Woodhill and her peers in the 19th century women's movement well understood the asymmetrical consequences of sexual intercourse for women, but they adopted a very different response than the one offered by pro-choice advocates today. These 19th century women's rights advocates demanded that women not become like libertine men, unencumbered by the responsibilities of sex and the duties of their children, but rather that men become responsible and that society become more hospitable to women and children by acknowledging and respecting women as women, not neutered imitations of men. I mean, think about it. Since the sexual revolution, sexual intercourse and potential mother, motherhood remain unshakably connected. 
60 years after the pill and 50 years after Roe v. Wade, nearly 50% of all pregnancies in the U.S. are still unintended, with half of women who seek abortions reporting that they were using contraception in the month they got pregnant. Now, obviously, unintended pregnancy is an age-old issue, one which the purveyors of the pill hoped finally to solve. But what's important to recognize, as leading economists have, is that when abortion is, easily, is an easily accessible backup plan to failed contraception, we tend to get far more risk-taking and so far more non-marital childbearing and more abortion, which is exactly what we saw in the uh, beginning in the decades after Roe. And of course, non-marital childbearing and abortion affect women far more than they affect men. As the University of Chicago professor Richard Posner explained in the phenomenon most succinctly, quote, if abortion is cheap, intercourse will be more frequent and may generate more unwanted pregnancies, not all of which will be aborted. This should help us to understand the combination of cheap contraceptives, frequent abortions, and yet a high rate of unwanted births in our society. In a word, easy abortion access encourages sexual risk-taking far outside of the context in which the unexpected pregnancy can be better received, marriage, or at least a cultural expectation that the impregnating man has as much a responsibility for the pregnancy as the pregnant woman. While equal paternal responsibility has never been a universal cultural expectation, that expectation is precisely the one that early women's rights advocates fought for. And yet their views were abandoned the very next century. Just at that point in history, when women were gaining the kind of influence in both the private and public spheres that could have made the expectation of male sexual integrity and responsibility culturally normative. For just as these advocates anticipated the connection between sexual intercourse and potential fatherhood, that connection that irresponsible men have always sought to avoid has withered even further in the decades following Roe. More than a third of children in the U.S. live without their fathers, even as social science is beginning to isolate the essential contributions these men make to their children's development. But as noted economist, Janet Yellen and George Yakarloff wrote in a famous 1996 paper, by making the birth of the child the physical choice of the mother, the sexual revolution has made marriage and child support a social choice of the father. Now, even Alan Guttmacher, then president of Planned Parenthood, which in 1968 was still devoted at this time only to contraception, not yet to abortion, saw the consequences of easy access to abortion clearly in the years before Roe. Quote, abortion on demand, he says, relieves the man of all possible responsibility. He simply becomes a coital or sexual animal. And as the Me Too movement revealed in spades and the porn industry has only made worse, the new coital animal lacking the formative schooling of desire expected of an aspiring gentleman will not so readily heed the word no. So let's think all this through afresh. The 1960s and early 70s were decades awash in new questions that emerged with the revolutionary release of the birth control pill alongside women's increased social status and the unprecedented entry of mothers of young children into the workforce. 
as the then distinctive women's movement and sexual revolution moved apace alongside one another, but not yet together, society had before it a newly emergent set of yet unforeseen and entangled questions. Number one, how to enable women to participate more fully in the public sphere. Number two, how to manage the significant technology shock created by the advent of the pill, which was effective, but importantly, not 100% so. And number three, how to maintain utmost societal concern for the perennial need to care for dependent children who heretofore had been the primary responsibilities of their mothers. The Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade chose one definitive route, short-circuiting the impassioned debates going on across the country in state after state, and thereby frustrating not only a better compromise among contending perspectives, it also thwarted more humane and creative cultural responses to the asymmetries that naturally exist and socially persist because of women's disproportionate role in human reproduction. And yet, without Roe v. Wade, but with the anti-discrimination wins of the 1970s, workplaces would have had to adjust much more quickly to encumbered women and duly encumbered men and so to the demands of the child rearing family more generally. For think about it, when we belittle the moral status of the unborn child treating the nascent human being in nearly a half century of Supreme Court case law as potential life or in academic and popular arguments as something parasitic upon the pregnant woman, we ought not be surprised when our workplaces and other cultural institutions treat dependent human beings and their caregivers that way too. Whether that be through still rampant pregnancy discrimination, inflexible work schedules, or a general inhospitality toward family responsibilities. Rather, it is only by reestablishing the inherent dignity of each human being that pregnant women and caregiving families will receive the public support and accommodation they in justice deserve. For the cultural value of their caregiving depends unavoidably upon recognizing the incalculable value of the vulnerable and dependent human beings in their care. An authentic reproductive justice would then not only ask expectant mothers to offer their developing unborn child care that is due them, for pregnant and childbearing mothers to receive in justice the abundant care and support they need, fathers must take up their shared duties of care toward both mother and child too. For as Mary Wollstonecraft, that deeply prescient author of the original treatise on women's rights in 1792 saw very clearly, and I explore in my new book, the single best response to the sexual asymmetries in both human reproduction and caregiving too is an emotionally engaged and deeply attentive fatherhood. Such a fatherhood is most essentially one in which men who sire children recognize the distinctive and irreplaceable bonds they have with them. But even more than that, it is the embrace of fatherhood as a core, constitutive, primary identity for men with children, one that prioritizes the collaborative, character-shaping, solidarity-building work of the home and deeply respects the distinctive burdens women experience in childbearing and child-rearing just as good men in generations past and present have always done. 
As Wollstonecraft argued more than 200 years ago and the 19th century women's rights advocates who built upon her work thought too, the well-being of women and children depends upon the capacity of men to take up their responsibilities to both, a responsibility that extends backward to learning to live lives of sexual integrity from their youth. Now it would surely be difficult for feminist advocates of the 1970s to reimagine a women's movement without abortion rights at its very center. Those feminists remember a time when women were regarded as designed solely for domestic life, when women's opinions were undervalued, and when mothers were seen as more capable and essential to their children's upbringings than were fathers. For 1970s feminist restrictions upon abortion seemed to betray precisely that vision of women one that unfairly confines women solely to maternity with no respect for their contributions beyond. But for those of us who grew up with the anti-discrimination gains of the 1970s securely in place, there's no question that women are as capable of educational and professional achievement as men. The questions have now become why the essential work of caregiving, depend, uh, caregiving for dependents still undertaken disproportionately by women is not as valued and supported as it should be, and why poor women especially continue to be bereft of the paternal support both their and their children so heartily need. These are the, the questions a renewed women's movement must work to address, and rethinking the country's reliance on abortion as a privileged response to sexual asymmetry would be a very good place to start. For those of you who are more uh, philosophically inclined, I wanna and wanna dive into these issues. I have one more slide for you. I co-teach an intensive summer seminar at Harvard. This year, it's at the end of June, and you can find an application to that seminar on the link at the very bottom of the slide. Have a wonderful 2022. Bye-bye.